Good morning, everybody. Thank you for attending. If you haven't already, would you please silence your mobile devices out of respect for the, the people around you and for our distinguished panel? And also, if you have not yet, would you please download the Pain Week app? We're looking for our feedback on all the sessions as well as the event this week. So this session is titled Multidisciplinary Pain Management Complex Cases. Our panel includes five distinguished speakers. Standing up here to my right is Teresa Malik-Searle. She's a nurse practitioner in pain management at the Division of Pain Management at Stanford University. We also have uh, two other people from the Division of uh, Pain Management, uh, Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative, and Pain Management at Stanford. Jennifer, Jennifer Ha is an instructor, and then Dr. Ravi Prasad, down at the end, is the Associate Chief and Director of Psychological Services. We also have Kate Schottmeyer. She is the Physical Therapy Program Coordinator in Pain Management at the San Francisco VA Healthcare System. And last but not least, to my right is Jeremy Adler, who is a Senior Pain Management PA at Pacific Pain Medicine Consultants in Encinitas, California. Would you please help me welcome our distinguished panel? Thank you, and good morning. Can you hear me in the back of the room okay? All right. So um, we purposely put the lights up really, really high, um, just so you could see the distinguished panel up front, um, because in the last session, it, we had the lights really low, so you could see the screen better, but you know we were sitting here, here in the dark. So if you find that you really don't get good visualization on the screen, just kind of you know shout out, and we may try and do a hybrid of uh, reducing the lights, but still allow you to... Um, this is Vegas. Why didn't we get a spotlight on the front? <laughs> so um, I'm going to be moderating um, the cases today, and you're going to hear really from a team of experts um, in their own right, but I want you to also realize that purposely we were setting up the cases this way, so you'll hear from each individual clinician about their the way that they would approach a case, but understand also that we work collaboratively. And just because one clinician looks at the mental health aspect, that doesn't mean that um, psychology, uh, physical therapy doesn't lapse over to that. So um, hopefully we'll also have some time for um, discussion, um, and you'll hear the um, members of the panel kind of um, go back and forth with uh, discussions and decision makings amongst them as a multidisciplinary team. We've got uh, quite an um, agenda today. I've got three cases for you. I would like to get through all of them. Um, they promised me I'd get uh, two hours, but I think we're now like on 50 minutes. Uh, how many of you came to my morning 7 a.m. session? How many of you? Where were the rest of you? Uh, how many of you came to Kate's session this morning? All right, so, yeah, so more came to yours than came to mine. <laughs> thanks, thanks for pushing. So, um, so for those of you that didn't, that's okay. You're here now. But um, we really gave a nice overview between the two of us in different rooms um, of multidisciplinary care and the importance of that. All right, so I'm going to read the, uh, the cases, and then uh, we'll go down the list of the panelists. Here's our disclosures. Boy, Jeremy, you've been a busy guy. Learning objectives, we're going to talk about um, complex uh, cases uh, in pain management from a multidisciplinary uh, team approach. We're going to talk about the biopsychosocial model uh, of pain management and, and uh, define that for you. And we're going to um, demonstrate the team approach and highlight the contributions of each individual uh, on the team and the decision-making that goes into complex um, case uh, uh, thought and management. 
Before we start, I want to define just two terms for you. Dr. Prasad, would you please uh, define for us uh, biopsychosocial treatment management? Can I look up Google real quick? Yep. <laughs> so biopsychosocial treatment basically is addressing all the biological, psychological, and social factors as they influence a pain condition. And what that basically refers to from the biological perspective, that's looking at all biomechanical factors, um, anything that may require uh, medical management, uh, some of the physical components of things. Uh, Psychological looks at all the psych factors, um, looking at the presence of mood issues, looking at the issues of things like catastrophization, other psychological variables that we know that influence um, uh, health and behavior outcomes, things that we know that influence pain outcomes. And then lastly, the social context. Um, Pain doesn't occur in a vacuum, and so we need to make sure that we're appreciating all the social variables that are playing a role as well in the person's experience of pain, Uh, looking at the system that they're in, the family system, the work system, and also the medical system in which they're receiving care. Uh, A lot of the things that we're going to be talking about, we appreciate that people who are in underserved areas, their social system may not allow for some of these different types of things. And so the goal is how can we try to approach multidisciplinary Uh, paradigms, at least the conceptualization of care for patients um, using biopsychosocial models. Thank you. Um, Google couldn't have done it any better. (laughs) Dr. Ha, can you briefly define multidisciplinary care for us? Um, Multidisciplinary care in the context of pain management is really bringing together a team. And for us, I think the meat of the team would be the pain management specialist, the primary care doctor, physical therapist, psychologist, pain psychologist, and any other specialists that need to be involved, whether that's an addictionologist, uh, whether that's going to be another field like a gastroenterologist if we're dealing with functional abdominal pain, or maybe even um, OB or urogynecology if we're talking about a pelvic pain syndrome. So really uh, having a cohesive team, so not just having the patient see one person and bounce from one person to the next, but really having an integrated management where uh, the team is really going back and forth, meeting occasionally to update each other on the patient's progress, and that way having uh, exponentially better care than would be otherwise piecemeal. Thank you. All right, so we're going to start with our first case, uh, Robert. So Robert is a 55-year-old Asian male. He uh, works as an executive. He's divorced. Um, his uh, presenting complaint is of uh, cervical paraspinal muscle spasm, neck pain, cervicalgia, and he also has uh, right upper extremity burning neuropathic pain. He travels extensively for business. He's overweight, uh, under-exercised. He um, reports moderate, sometimes um, significant work and personal stress, but he feels that's manageable for the most part. He also reports a poor history of sleep. How many of you know Robert? This is medical history. He's overweight, as mentioned. He's got hyperlipidemia. He did have a reported shingles outbreak about two years ago, and it was um, a rash in the C7T1 distribution. It was treated um, uh, with a cyclovir for 10 days. His surgical history is significant for cervical fusion, single-level cervical fusion about five years ago. Uh, He had a history of a right shoulder arthroscopy, um, and he had a subacromial decompression during that surgery. Uh, Social history, he's divorced. He's got no kids. He works full-time, full-time plus in sales. Any of you that are in sales, you know what that's like. Um, And 60% of his time is uh, spent traveling. 
physical exam. He's got uh, moderate uh, hypertension. Um, he's got a um, higher than we would like BMI. He's got decreased range of motion to that right shoulder, which is my right. Here we go. Um, and it's related to pain. So he can move it. It's just very painful, so he chooses not to move it. He's got allodynia um, on the right scapula. Uh, he's got breakaway weakness in the right upper extremity compared with the left. He's got um, positive uh, spasm, paraspinal muscle spasm to his lumbar back, uh, lower back. He has got a right greater than left facet loading maneuvers. So for those of you that aren't familiar with that, um, that's really pain at the joint, the facet joints in the lumbar region. That is when you put, put, put the joints together, you get a painful localized response. No current rash throughout anywhere on his body. He does have a diagnostic study that's old. It predates his um, cervical surgery uh, that showed he had a right paracentral disc protrusion that was pressing on the C5 nerve. And there is, can you see his body map? Okay. So um, we do something that's probably pretty common for most of your practices that you do primary pain management. And we have body maps that we ask patients to fill out. And essentially they'll put, usually they just color it with crayons, but they may put daggers or stab marks. Um, and sometimes that tells you a little bit about the intensity. But um, he's got pain pretty much as described there. So his medications, he's on Soma. How many of you prescribe Soma? Oh, very few of you. How many of you used to prescribe Soma? Soma is a very overprescribed um, medication for um, muscle spasm, particularly in primary care. Um, so if you're not prescribing it, um, that's reasonable. But, but these patients, a lot of patients are coming to um, specialty clinics on Soma. Um, and uh, our panelists will talk to us about what, what's good and what's not so good about that. He's on sertraline for his depression. Uh, he's on something for his um, lipids. He just doesn't know the name. He is taking aprazolam on an as-needed basis, and because of his um, sleep needs, he's taken Ambien pretty much nightly. He does have a sulfa allergy. So treatments that have uh, been tried, he has been through physical therapy. It was limited after his cervical fusion, um, and that's it. He had an intraarticular steroid injection into his shoulder um, prior to his arthroscopy. Uh, he's on, uh, he tried pregabalin with no benefit. Um, he was able to get up to 100 milligrams twice a day, and then his uh, clinician uh, stopped it or um, switched him to something else. He um, was uh, on Percocet, which provided him with some relief, but resulted in unmanageable constipation. And he could not keep uh, the timely appointments to his primary care provider's office to maintain the monthly prescription as requested, so just stopped it. And he briefly saw a psychologist after his divorce. All right, so how many of you still know Robert, right? Pretty, pretty um, characteristic scenario uh, with a lot of patients that we see. So what are we thinking initially about the differential panelists? This is for everybody. I'm sorry, you can go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. So every so so, our, what do we think? What are some of the differential diagnoses for Robert? I'll go first. Just speak. <laughs> okay, now you can hear me. Hey. Um, so something that came up as we were all preparing a bit for this um, 
uh, it came to my attention that not everybody may know that physical therapists are now available for direct access to patients in the healthcare system in every state. So we are frontline practitioners now legally. Making not every diagnosis? State uses that. So that means we do differential diagnostics as well. Um, and what I would be thinking immediately for this gentleman is I'd clear a shoulder girdle condition. Maybe there's a recurrence of something in the shoulder. He has a history there. I'd want to know more about uh, potential for new radiculopathy in the cervical area, uh, myofascial condition that could be just kicked up and angry, or is this possibly related to a post-herpetic neuralgia recurrence because he has that history too. So those are my initial thoughts. Oh, you on got them all. I did. You got them all. Is there anybody else on the panel that you know have different deferentials that they can... Um kind of pop out um yeah it's on the continuum so like with the allodynia and scapular region that's that's going to be more like medial branches and so we're thinking cervical or thoracic spondylosis but it's kind of a continuum of what you were saying awesome okay so with those differentials kind of you know floating through your head um mr adler what do you think about his current medication management um as it is and are there any changes that you might want to make so I think to start with medications is, um, well, I was asked to look at medications uh, for this particular case, but in our practice and certainly the way I approach patients is medications are supportive of a bigger treatment plan. And my colleagues here are going to have, I think, a lot more to offer this uh, patient than uh, what we would have with just looking at medications in isolation. Uh, that being said, if you look at medications, then you want to consider things like the effectiveness, the safety, the interactions with the other medications this person may have. And there's a lot of information in this case we really don't have. We, we don't know, for example, what he's really tried. We know he's had pregabalin, but we don't know about things like um, anti-inflammatories. We don't know about other muscle agents. We don't know about his, uh, his uh, kidneys or other kind of coexisting uh, diseases. If you have uh, sleep apnea, he's overweight, and he's having difficulty sleeping. Looking down his medication list, though, certainly I think, as uh, Teresa had mentioned, the uh, carisoprodol is a, uh, a concern for chronic use. That is something that uh, used to be widespread in our community. We've seen a significant reduction in the, uh, the use of that, and we support that. Uh, that medication is uh, metabolized to uh, meprobamate, which is a barbiturate, and isn't really a muscle relaxant in the true sense. So in looking at those medications, I would be concerned about the long-term use of him continuing with that. Of course, we don't know even from these, how well he's doing. He may feel that he's optimally managing the way he is presently. Not that that doesn't mean we wouldn't change it, but we don't have any sort of assessment right now as to how he's responding. Uh, we know that he has some sort of mood disorder. At least he's been treated for it with sertraline and alprazolam. Certainly would want to know more about that aspect of his care. One of the considerations with this patient is he has some elements of neuropathic pain and uh, musculoskeletal pain. So potentially changing something to duloxetine, trying an SNRI, considering something other than sertraline, and reducing maybe some of his use of a uh, benzodiazepine. Zolpidem? Oh, that, that we generally uh, do rely on our, our primary care uh, workforce in our community to manage uh, sleep disorders, but taking a uh, dose, uh, certainly in excess of uh, FDA uh, dosing guidelines, and that is a concern. And then if his pain is not well managed, and an opioid or, or a stronger medicine uh, per se for more uh, intermittent or acute pain, things like tramadol um, or others, we really need to have a lot more information about risk assessment, things as, as risk for abuse, his family history of abuse, personal history of abuse, and um, we'd want to have a, a drug test and review his PDMP data 
So kind of difficult to really know which direction, um, but he does have neuropathic pain. He could try other anti-neuropathic agents, but I think my colleagues here are going to have a lot more really as the foundation of his treatment plan. What do you think about, so he came to you so he's not well-controlled. So he needs your help. What do you think about, and I'm playing devil's advocate, right? So um, are there any topicals that would be reasonable for him? Uh, certainly if he has allodynia uh, or any sort of kind of topical uh, neuropathic pain, uh, anesthetics uh, certainly could be a good option. And there, there are some available. There's uh, commercially uh, prepared. There's some compounded options. So definitely any kind of regional uh, neuropathic pain would be a great option. Okay. Do you have any, um, all right, what about, are there any anti-inflammatories uh, topical that you could use for him, do you think? If you think that there's an inflammatory component to his pain? So it's not real clear to me on this. Um, I think that after he participates certainly with a uh, rehabilitative approach with physical okay. therapy, we may uh, highlight some more inflammatory uh, nociceptive pain that an yeah. uh, anti-inflammatory topical could help. And I think that's a reasonable treatment approach to, you know, really when you're seeing somebody for the first time and, you know, Jeremy, myself, Dr. Ha, you know, we're often, and, and now Kate too, might be the first point of contact. And so before you really make a huge change to medications, particularly to an antidepressant, Right, Be, you don't want to you don't want to just you know knee jerk say oh okay sertraline SSRI well I know that SNRIs are more appropriate for patients um, in terms of pain and can also help with mood but if he's really getting good mood stabilization um, not having that support or enough knowledge about his his mental health would you automatically on that first visit want to change it. Right? But these are things that you're starting to think about, right? He definitely has both a neuro, uh, neuropathic as well as a nociceptive component to his pain, and he's deconditioned, and I'm sure there's a lot of fear avoidance about moving. Um, so he needs a lot of education, and then I think it would be appropriate on the first visit to say, I'm not going to make any changes to your medications. You're safe on them right now. We could reintroduce trying the, um, the Lyrica again. The pregabalin, again, maybe at higher doses. Um, maybe you could even introduce, you know he's having sleep problems, and you really, you know he's going to have some sleepless nights if you try and get him off that Ambien. So is there something that would be, you know, safe to try? Would you want to try maybe a low-dose TCA that you know is going to um, have some sedative properties? Would you want to think about something like melatonin, again, I think, which is pretty benign but could be significantly helpful? Um, or... Um, like I said, a topical applicant, you know, um, lidocaine patches of some sort. 4% um, lidocaine patches are over the counter now, and they're relatively inexpensive. Patients can order them on Amazon. You know, is that a bad approach to consider? Or aspirin or over-the-counter um, capsaicin. With the warning, it's going to burn like a Dickens. But, you know, there's some things that you can consider if you really don't want to make a huge change to his medications right now. Um, okay, so we're going to hand it over to Dr. Ha, and she's going to talk to us about are there any interventions, any um, either immediate in-office or long-term interventions, um, injection therapies that you might want to think about. Yeah, I think um, first before going down the injection pathway, I just want to finish up his diagnostic workup, so if he has not had any shoulder or neck imaging, because the age-old question is always, is it the neck or the shoulder? And it's usually a little bit of both. Uh, so I definitely want to reorder some spine imaging. And I think it can be really validating for patients, especially if there's a lot of fear of movement involved and he didn't get a lot of physical therapy after his previous surgery. We want to just make sure the stability of the fusion is there because there's some possibility maybe he has a new disc bulge and we'll have some new targets there. But in the meantime, he definitely has some 
uh, muscle spasm, cervical paraspinal muscle spasm. So we definitely start off with some trigger point injections if he's amenable, and it will also allow us to see kind of his general reaction to procedures and uh, whether he's going to be able to tolerate more intense things that we have down the road for him. Uh, if his neck pain is really from spondylosis and it's also contributing to some of the allodynia and scapula, he'd be a good candidate for uh, cervical medial branch blocks. He did have the subacromial decompression as well uh, at some point, and he, he could either get a shoulder injection, glenohumeral, or we could do a subacromial bursa injection. Those could be done in clinic under ultrasound guidance. If he does have more of a refractory shoulder condition and we're not really seeing anything that uh, can be intervened from a surgeon's perspective, but he continues to have shoulder pain, he might be a candidate for something like a suprascapular nerve block just to target the pain relief. And if he does respond well to that, he might even be a candidate for things like peripheral nerve stimulation, uh, which has really opened up a world of possibilities for us. And ultimately down the road, if say his neck pain was refractory to other measures, um, you know, question of whether any kind of neuromodulation would be in place. But that's kind of a broad swath of everything we could offer. Yeah. So um, would you, what would, what would be in your decision making if you were going to focus on neck versus shoulder? So if you had to order one test, what would it be and what, what area would you target? Diagnostic test. Um, yeah, I think I would much... <laughs> It's hard to say. I like to. I like it all. Um, I think you it, have one dollar. I only have one dollar. Yeah, where are you going to spend that dollar? Okay. Well, I am good at spending money. Um, I, I would say that the uh, if the radicular pain is very severe, I definitely want to get some some uh, updated neck imaging. Yeah. And would you get an MRI, a CAT scan, or an X-ray? I would get an MRI. Okay. I agree. <laughs> Good thing we practice together, huh? Yeah. No, good. I think it's reasonable because, you know, he has known cervical disc pathology. Um, he hasn't had any imaging since that neck was fused. You know, he's got suspicious symptoms for another acute redic. Um, so I think, you know, that would be definitely reasonable. And I think that it would you could make an argument for insurance, right, to get that. I think some clinicians would um, couple that with an X-ray, X-ray, a flexion extension X-ray to see if there is any movement there I think would be reasonable to do. But, I, yeah, I would probably, if I saw him, I'd probably focus on the neck before then I would go to the shoulder. Um, is there any concern from the panelists about, well, Kate mentioned this, about a, um, a post-herpetic neuralgia? You know, something to think about. And that really necessarily wouldn't change imaging options. It may, it may or it may not change interventional um, injection therapies. The other nice thing that I like that Dr. Ha had mentioned was the trigger point injections. Very easy, simple, um, not a lot of um, potential complications to doing a trigger point injection in the office. You know it's going to be short-lived. You educate your patient that it's probably not going to give you long-lasting benefit. But if you have somebody that goes in there that's just having so much pain and, and, and you can identify bands of muscles that are in spasm, putting a little local anesthetic there, letting them move around, you really gain that patient's confidence in you as a practitioner that you, there's something that you can do. And then maybe it gives you, buys you more time to you know, try and do a better diagnostic workup. Thank you. Miss Kate. 
what would you do from a physical therapy perspective? Or how would you, can you speak to us on two levels? One, if you saw this patient as a new patient briefly in, you know, as somebody that you're going to make a diagnosis on. Um, and then how would you really work within the, um, the multidisciplinary group um, and advise your colleagues on what should be done and maybe shouldn't be done or, or considered of what you haven't heard already? Yeah. So physical therapists are thinking about um, basic differentials and then do we need to refer out? Is this something we can treat in the clinic or do we need to refer to a specialist of some kind? And in general, uh, there are fantastic clinical practice guidelines for radicular pain in the cervical region, so refer to those. And first I would ask this person, what's your history? Did you fall? Is there a mechanism of injury that could explain a new reason to get diagnostic imaging? And if so, do we need to do that today and stop the evaluation? Or do, can we continue and pursue some treatment that's conservative? And because I'm in the conservative care end of things, I tend, I see that people get better without surgery, so I also know that there's a great prognosis, even if the pain is loud and proud today. Um, so I, I would do a thorough evaluation and then have a discussion about the findings. And that would include asking about psychosocial changes, any lifestyle changes in the recent past that might correlate with the increase in pain, and get a better understanding of what else could be contributing to this increase in pain, and then prepare, perhaps, if there is more diagnostic imaging, prepare for the what if it shows nothing. <laughs> then what? That's good news in many ways, right? Uh, and so I, in general, would be very careful to, um, you all heard me this, whoever heard me knows that I'm careful with my words. So I would be careful not to say words like, your disc bulge, right? I wouldn't even say that. I would encourage someone to, um, to keep moving, ask about their movement, and playing a little devil's advocate, it's not always deconditioning. This man travels a lot. He's on the planes. These airports are huge. He's probably moving a lot, lifting luggage, carrying things. Maybe he's overdoing it. Maybe he's irritating something that needs a little bit of a rest or some gentler movement. And so I'd explore a lot of that and figure out what his day-to-day -day habits are and what could we do right now today to mitigate your symptoms. And then I do think about what other ways could he get relief if he's really in a, lot, a great deal of pain and can't engage in movement if that's something that's important. Then if he is uh, already talking about going to see a specialist or thought about getting an injection, because a lot of times people come to us already with that history and experience and they're thinking maybe I need another one. And so I would take the chance to educate about how that could really be useful perhaps, but it'd be tra temporary, transient, and what do we do in the window of time where you do feel better? And how do we keep this from recurring three months from now? when the steroid wears off, right? So these are the kinds of things that I, that I would spend time on. And I would really, uh, every chance I could, I'd reassure this person that movement is safe if that was my assessment based on the physical exam that I'd do. Um, and if not, then I'd refer out right there and try to find within my community who, who would be the most appropriate, whether it's back to primary care, go to see a specialist to talk about injection therapies, or maybe they need to go to an urgent care clinic or emergency room if there's something really new. Thank you. And I love the insight that you made thinking about, you know, this, it's not just the person that you see in front of you and the, and the symptoms and the exam, but understanding kind of how he lives his life, you know, and in and out of airports. Yeah. And the, I didn't even think about that when I put this case study together. That's why we do this as a team. <laughs> Dr. Prasad, what do you think of um, our fine patient? So I know that some of the feedback that we received last year when we first did this was um, that people thought that the cases had very limited information. A lot of the audience members said, I wish I knew more about what was going on with these folks so that I could conceptualize how, what I would do for the patient. But the reality is, is the amount of information that we have here actually is a lot more information than we often get when somebody gets referred to us, right? 
Um, and so uh, even with this, though, there's still a lot of, from a psychological perspective, there's a lot of limited information. Um, so there's a number of things that I'd want to look into with this person. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this by saying that I will probably say the same thing for each of the three cases that we have. So I will sound like a broken No, record. you can't do ditto. <laughs> no ditto. So I'm just going to say it for this case, I'm going to walk out, right? So. <laughs> Um, the, the first thing is... There's a reason w- there's no stairs over there, by the way. <laughs> the first thing I would do is I would want to know what are the patient's expectations. Um, he's coming in for treatment. Um, this is something that's been going on. What is he hoping to gain from coming in right now? Um, what are his thoughts on his pain? Does he think that something sinister is happening in his body? Does he think uh, this is a sign of something bad, some sort of uh, uh, pathology that needs to be addressed? Or does he just see it as a, a flare or something that's more of a nuisance? Is he looking for a cure for his pain? Is he hoping that there'll be somewhat of a fix? Or is he interested in just something that'll allow him to better manage his condition? So I'd want to know what his expectations are, because if we're looking at his pain from a perspective of we want to help you become as functional as possible, and even if that has a lower level of pain, if you're functional, that's a win. But he's looking at it from a perspective of this pain needs to go away 100%. Our expectations aren't aligned. And so we want to make sure that we're starting off the treatment pathway uh, with similar expectations. Um, Another thing I'd want to look at is his sleep. Um, what are the factors feeding into his sleep? Is he not sleeping well because of anxiety? Is he not sleeping well because of work stress? Is he not sleeping well because of um, his pain or because of other factors? Um, what are the things has he tried for sleep, not just medication-wise, but has he ever done any behavioral interventions for sleep? There's a wide range of different things uh, that can be done for sleep, including things like cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which has demonstrated a high level of um, uh, efficacy. Um, I'd be curious to know what his activity patterns are right now. Uh, We know that he travels a lot. We know that he's still working, which is a very good sign. But does he have any capacity for activity outside of that? Or is he basically, I go, I do my sales work, and then I just collapse in the hotel room, and that's pretty much it. So I'd want to know what his activity patterns are like um, uh, at home or in his daily life. I'd want to know about his mood states. Um, He's taking alprazolam. Was that prescribed as a muscle relaxant, or was that prescribed for anxiety? And how does his anxiety manifest itself? Um, I'd want to know about his depression. Is his depression stable? Um, is the sertraline that he's taking for his depression, is that effective? Um, he's at 150 milligrams. Um, how long has he been taking that, and why was it ramped up to that particular level? Uh, were there symptoms that weren't being adequately addressed when he was at lower levels? Um, and how else has he managed his depression over the course of time? Uh, when he went through his divorce, he saw a psychologist. Did he see mental health at any other times in his life beyond that? Um, also, it doesn't seem like, based on the information that we have, that he's had much exposure to any of the behavioral interventions for pain management. Um, We know that regardless of what the cause of his pain is, we know that different substances, stressors, and emotional states can all influence and intensify that pain. So I'd want to get a better sense of uh, what those factors are. You know, is he drinking more to try to help himself fall asleep? Are there any, is there any role that substances may be playing in his experience? Um, How is he coping with the pain and the impact that it has on his life? providing him with uh, opportunities to learn some of those different things, pacing of activities, um, activity regulation. He is traveling quite a bit. So if there's a likelihood that he's overextending himself, teaching him ways how to navigate the fine line between doing too much and too little. Um, would want to know about the social situation, getting back to that biopsychosocial model. Um, he's divorced. Uh, he doesn't have any kids. Is that something that's okay for him, or is that another source of stress for him as well? Um, and then also, as in terms of his candidacy for advanced interventional procedures, we heard Dr. Ha mention that way further down the line, that there may be consideration for things like uh, neuromodulation. Uh, we'd want to explore things related to um, uh, his, 
whether he's a good candidate for that, looking at different psychological variables, um, such as the things that I mentioned, because we know that psychosocial variables are strong predictors of outcomes from interventional procedures. But I'd also want to look at things related to compliance. Um, when he was on opiate medication before, he wasn't keeping his appointments in his primary care office. Um, was that poor compliance? Was that just the busy nature of his life? I'd want to get a better sense of those things because we'd want to look at compliance before we um, move forward with more advanced interventional procedures. So a lot of different things to look at. Thank you. Thank you. It was awesome. And um, I like the what you brought up about the cognitive behavioral therapy for sleep. So um, it took me a long time practicing pain medicine to re- even realize that there was such a thing. You know, what does that mean? And how do we get that? You know, um, in the lecture I did this morning, I introduced the audience to an app for that. There's an app for everything um, called Shut Eye. And so, you know, again, your patients look at you for your recommendations, your clinical, and your, your voice and your recommendations are powerful to them. And so there's, there's usually a way to get what you need. It's just knowing what's appropriate for your patient. Can I add one little thing before we move on? Yeah, real because little. Real little. Cervical radiculopathy has a natural history that's self-limiting within about a year. So if we can encourage people to ride it out, that's also okay. If there's nothing else nefarious. Yeah, you know, more is not better. Right. It, we don't. It's. I think we again. We feel very um, pushed to help to write a prescription, to do an injection. You know, to to make a referral. Um, and uh, it's not always the best way. All right. So this is Stella, lovely Stella. She is a 72-year-old Persian female. Um, I'm going to hold. I know. I'm just going to hold questions till the end. Okay. I apologize. We just. I want to make sure that we get through all these. Hold. Hold on to them. Write them down, and then we'll go through the questions at the end. Okay. That's okay. Um, and, and most of us are going to be here for the week, too. Um, so if you want to talk more about maybe cases that you have um, of your own, you know, we can, we're happy to, um, to talk to you about those. So um, Stella has, she's status post right total knee arthroplasty. She continues to have pain. Um, and she's also got chronic left knee pain um, related to arthritis. She's got episodic low back pain. She's got a 20-year history of uh, diabetes, and um, because of that also has a comorbid lower extremity peripheral neuropathy uh, pain, and she has balance issues related to her neuropathies, and uses a walker, and occasionally she has a left uh, foot drop, usually uh, at the end of the day when she's uh, tired. Her medical history is significant for diabetes, as I mentioned, anxiety, mild depression. Hey, where are you going, Matt? Um, fall risk. Don't trip on the way out the door. Uh, he's got a history of chronic pain. Excuse me. She's got a history of chronic pain um, as a diagnosis, fibromyalgia, a diabetic peripheral neuropathy, and um, osteoarthritis. Her su- surgery um, history is significant for uh, right total knee arthroplasty about a year ago. She's had uh, carpal tunnel release surgeries um, in the remote past. She's widowed. She lives alone. She does have a 47-year-old son who um, visits infrequently, lives on the um, other coast. She's active with her church, um, so hopefully a reasonable support system, even though she doesn't have family. And she finds it difficult to attend, to attend events, unfortunately, because she no longer drives. In a clinical, a sig- typical scenario in our elderly population. Um, on her physical exam, she's got she's normotensive. She has got um, a pain in the iliotibial band on the right side. She's uh, got functional range of motion to both knees without swelling, um, but pain, obviously. Decreased sensation to her feet bilaterally in a stocking uh, glove distribution, which uh, we would anticipate up to mid-calf. 
She um, walks slow. She's kyphotic. She's got good strength in her lower extremities, however. Um, her diagnostic studies, um, she had uh, AP x-rays of uh, both knees about two weeks ago, and her right knee showed that she's got really intact hardware and good alignment. Her left knee shows severe osteoarthritis. This is her body map. And uh, her medication. So no allergies. She's um, taking uh, an opiate um, pain medication on a daily basis. Um, she is also on sertraline for her depression, a little bit of a lower dose. She's on clonazepam for sleep. She is on low-dose gabapentin twice a day. She's on her um, medications for her diabetes. Treatment, treatment history has included uh, the use of physical therapy. She had home physical therapy uh, for range of motion and strengthening after her knee replacement, um, which was limited. Uh, her gabapentin, she did try gabapentin at higher dosing, um, but could not tolerate the side effects and did have some peripheral swelling with that. So um, from the panel, do, can you just throw out some initial uh, diagnosis that you think might be appropriate for her? Would you confirm the diagnosis that you got in your history? Would there be others that you would add? Would there be some that you really don't think she meets criteria for? Uh, she certainly uh, has pain related to knee osteoarthritis. She has diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Her history is fibromyalgia, which will interfere or interact with both of those. I mean, which, I think what do you mean interact with both of those? Well, fibromyalgia can uh, certainly uh, amplify. Oh, worse than them. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that she's got a uh, total knee that's been replaced and ongoing pain in her knee as well. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she has a number of uh, pain generators. Yeah. So she, you know, both nociceptive as well as neuropathic. So um, there she is, Miss Stella. So how, um, Jeremy, would you change your medications, add medications, take away medications? How would you manage her from a medical perspective? So medications in this patient are going to be quite complicated. Uh, the risk uh, certainly of her falling and having a new injury and trauma is uh, pretty great. So the typical drugs that might be used for peripheral neuropathy like uh, pregabalin and gabapentin, I think she, she's taking gabapentin, uh, we have to be pretty cautious uh, that she doesn't sustain now a new injury as a result of treatment. She's at high she, risk, isn't she? She is at high yeah. risk. Uh, she's also taking clonazepam at night. That Certainly is another medication when mixed with uh, hydrocodone and gabapentin, I think, increase her fall risk as well. So really the medications uh, for her are going to be supportive. She needs to be uh, working on a uh, rehabilitative approach. There's certainly going to be some interventional options, I think, that may be a value that could uh, offset some of the needs of her reliance on medications. Uh, with a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, peripheral neuropathy, and arthritis, certainly just like the last case, considering duloxetine as opposed to sertraline, although I think we really need to understand why she's on sertraline, its effectiveness, and, and really what else she's tried. I think, uh, just like the last case, these medications are really not the endpoint, but rather facilitators towards her treatment plan. Her treatment really needs to be around a behavioral and a uh, functional kind of restorative approach where the medications then support that. So she's not able to participate because of pain then a little bit more uh, reliance on medicines to really enable her to participate in her treatment program, not looking at these medications as the real end result. Uh, she is taking an opioid. Uh, we don't have any sort of history as to the, the experience she's had with other opioids. She does have continuous around-the-clock pain. She's not taking that much hydrocodone where I would necessarily want just to rotate her to an extended-release opioid. But looking down the road, if, if all other options are exhausted, certainly something like that may be a reasonable uh, consideration. 
Do you have any problems uh, keeping this woman on the hydrocodone as she's using it? In terms of keeping her on it right now, uh, we certainly would need to do a risk assessment. Uh, we need to talk to her about the, uh, her own history with uh, the use of various substances. Uh, we don't know uh, if she has a prior history of substance use disorder herself. We need to find out really a little bit more about her environment. We need to know about her uh, family history, talk to her about how she stores her medication and keeps them secure, and, uh, and how she organizes her medicine. I get a sense that that may be a potential challenge with all the different medications that she uh, takes. Polypharmacy in the elderly is huge, mm -hmm. right? Would you, um, topicals, same question as the last. Do you, would you see more of a role for topicals with this woman? Uh, certainly uh, in her knees, I think that there's a uh, potential for anti-inflammatory, the peripheral neuropathy and anesthetic, and uh, it'd certainly be worth uh, trying. Okay. And for the diabetic peripheral neuropathy maybe too, mm -hmm. for her feet? Sure. Um, would you worry about a chronic NSAID in this woman? Sure, with 20 years of uh, diabetes, you worry about her kidney functioning, and, and NSAID certainly could have a uh, negative impact on, uh, on that. So no, I mean, I think that the medication aspect of her care is important, but it really needs to be secondary. It really needs to focus on things that are not just uh, pharmaceutical-based. Is there anything that you take away? Take away from her medication? Uh, that would be uh, hard. I mean, the gabapentin, I would really want to dissect that in terms of its effectiveness. I mean, 100 milligrams twice a day. I would question whether or not she's actually getting some benefit from that. And certainly, if she's not getting a profound benefit, then I would really question continuing her on a medication like that. Again, more is not better, right? Correct. All right, thank you. So, Dr. Ha, right. would you see any uh, room for interventional management with this woman? I think for her, uh, definitely would deserve a call to her orthopedic surgeon um, since knee replacements usually come in pairs and based on her imaging, it looks like it's pretty severe on the other side and it's kind of a natural thing for the surgeons to say, well, we did one, let's do the other. So. Um, that might also help frame the medication management. So if she's going to be going back for surgery, we might want to be thinking about setting up her multimodal analgesia before she gets into the operating room. Um, but in the meantime, if she's having some continued pain after a total knee arthroplasty on the right side, I'd be looking for scar neuromas, painful scars that we could treat. I would consider maybe doing some genicular nerve blocks again, something that can be done under ultrasound, an area that can be ablated. It's purely sensory. So she would be a good candidate for that on the right side. Um, on the left side, you know, the data in terms of long-term doing knee injections for knee osteoarthritis, we've seen some conflicting results and maybe even a decrease in the cartilage over time. But still, kind of as a temporizing measure, if that's kind of her main complaint, I'd, I'd definitely consider um, an intra-articular uh, knee injection. In terms of the diabetic peripheral neuropathy, I think one thing um, to consider maybe is use of capsaicin or capsaicin patch, the, the trade name being the Cutenza, if it's really a, a severe peripheral neuropathy with a lot of allodynia. If it's more of an internal pain, I, I may not consider that as much. Um, the other thing, she says she has some occasional left foot dragging, occasional axial back pain. She's 72 years old, and I would just want to make sure um, that she's had some sort of imaging at some point in time, um, and she would definitely be a candidate for things like medial branch blocks and whatnot. Thank you. Um, does the audience know what genicular nerve nerves are? Okay. Um, so can you just, just spend like a minute talking about kind of um, genicular nerve as a sensory nerve, as a peripheral nerve, 
right? So it's not all about the spinal nerves. And could you also, even though it's not apparent in this case, but are there um, peripheral nerves in the hip for osteoarthritis pain that we can target if the patient is not um, a good candidate for surgery? Uh, yes, it's they. There, they both exist. There's definitely like little articular branches. If you talk to a peripheral nerve surgeon, um, they kind of question the location of our treatments, as in, you know, what do you what do you mean when you say genicular nerves? So I think one of the points that I that I want to emphasize is that we may be talking about a nerve today, but the anatomy continues to evolve in different areas because we pay more attention to these tiny little branches. But either way, it seems to be effective. There, um, there has been a published report in terms of aiming for um, the distal femoral condyles on the medial and lateral side, as well as the um, proximal medial tibia. I usually don't treat the uh, proximal lateral tibia because that's also where the common perineal nerve traverses. And if you're doing an ablation, it's a little bit scary because we're kind of in the neighborhood. So generally, we, we tend to treat those three sites we do the block. We may not even use steroid. If this lady has had a lot of steroid, it would be completely reasonable just to see what her diagnostic response is and then move on in the future to uh, the ablation itself. And you can do a similar, similar technique under ultrasound guidance uh, at, with the distal branches of, of, say, like the femoral nerve. And also you have a little bit of innervation, like, say, from the uh, iliohypogastric nerve as well, a lateral hip branch. Yeah, so I think, you know, again, the science is evolving and the um, ability to non-invasively or minimally invasively identify peripheral nerves that can be targeted and treated um, is an area that I I think... Primary care, definitely not. And some um, primary pain clinicians don't even think about. Um, But as a general rule, and this is, you know, me as opposed to being an interventionalist, Pure sensory nerves are really good targets. If you can find them, identify them to numb up, to ablate um, versus a sensory and motor nerve where you need to really be careful about um, decreasing or cutting out the ability of that muscle to function. So just targets to think about that you may not normally think about. Kate, how would you manage this lovely 72-year-old? Non-English speaking. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just threw that. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I first need to assume that I have the means to translate something, and there are translating companies that have telephones with translators on the other end. I've used those before. They're not easy. They're clunky, but they exist. Uh, So because she doesn't have family, um, you know, first of all, this kind of case looks like a PT bread and butter case, doesn't it? Right? Knee pain. Go to see a PT. And she also may be someone who didn't have a good experience with her postoperative course of care. I would explore that. What does she think about me before we get started working together? Uh, and she's got a background history of fibromyalgia, so we know there's a central process at work here, which might mean that the knee itself may not need to be the target at all. And because she has diabetes and she has osteoarthritis that's known and she has knee pain, the research is really clear that exercise is an important factor here. We have to get that going. Whether she's doing it now, we don't know. Um, But I'd explore what her current level of activity is and what her thoughts and beliefs are around exercise and movement and whether she's doing it. If not, why not? Uh, But there are considerations with her uh, health history here. So with exercise and movement, we know in the general population that exercise-induced endogenous analgesia is a thing, you know, the runner's high. And it can be really, really helpful to reduce dampen pain experience. It doesn't work well in fibromyalgia. 
That's been studied. So you can't expect that. So patient expectations is very, that's very important to address this patient's expectations for movement because if she's been out of the habit of movement because of a recent recurrence in pain or a resurgence of pain, uh, especially at her age, it will be very hard to get back moving and she needs to know. And if she does it and push, pursues and pr pushes through that, it gets better. So it's uh, a lot of people need a graded approach, a little more every day, a little more every week. But she would need to get back into continuous movement and know it's going to be nasty for two weeks. And just keep going and it gets better. That's the kind of education we might need to give her um, and then get her back to a continuous level of movement throughout the day because that is, is research supported for best treatment for fibromyalgia. Osteoarthritis does best with exercise whether or not they have a surgical course. Um, so if she's not doing targeted exercise for the knees, that's something I would also try to uh, implement. But there are a lot of factors, not only the language barrier, there may be other cultural barriers. She may not want to show her knee to me. You know, She might not want to lift clothes off her leg. So these are things that we might have to figure out really creative ways to get her moving and to even do a physical exam. So uh, those yeah. are some initial thoughts. You know, and that is a very important point that you brought up <clears throat> about culture. Um, I, I personally have had patients that I've tried to send to physical therapy or to pool therapy um, that, it, you know, it's not appropriate for a female patient of a certain culture to then have to work with a male therapist. Um, so, you know, in that, so thank you for bringing that up. Do you think she would be, would she be reasonable for pool therapy? Knowing that she needs the strength training, would it be worthwhile to get her into pool therapy initially so that... Someone's trying to get in the room. So that she could um, <laughs> at least maybe get some confidence in moving in the pool. Would That's that be a reasonable treatment? Certainly a consideration. I mean, you can do a lot of balance training in the water and it's safer, um, but... Uh, but does she have access? I, I don't often right. recommend pool therapy because people can't keep going. Yeah. And we live on land. We don't live in the water. So I really work hard to teach people ways that they can live outside of the pool, even though that's what they really think they might like. Um, but I, I say that, you know, let's look long term here mm -hmm. because you might like it now and it might be great to get you through if you have access. But then what about two months from now, a year from now? Can you keep it going? What would work for you to keep going with a movement regimen? Let's, let's really problem solve that. Those are the things that I often think about. I, I like that. We don't live in the sea. We live on land. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Um, one other quick question. Are you concerned about her foot drop? And um, would, would you consider it like an AFO for her or something that, you know, or how would you counsel yep. her to make, you know, um, to make sure she doesn't fall because we know that that, you know, can be a very bad. Yeah. Big scenario. oversight on my part. Yes. Uh, definitely. If she's having foot drop and it hasn't been addressed, that's something that PT can help with or a prosthetist, prosthetist can help with. Uh, or she might just need some coaching and training on how to move differently if it's not extreme enough to warrant an AFO. Um, so there are definitely things to do, but it's also true in a population uh, in her age group, if she's not been moving and she has diabetic neuropathy and so the sensory changes make it hard for her to know where her feet are in space, she just might do well with some balance training perfect. and using her feet differently. Um, you know, it, it can be pretty simple too. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Dr. Prasad, are you worried about our Stella? I am worried about Stella, but I worry about everybody. <laughs> Maybe I need some uh, clonazepam myself. Um, 
So with her, you know, I, I think one of the things that uh, that was brought up are the cultural issues. Um, that would be one of the, the major things that I'd explore. Um, I would want to understand, um, uh, you know, when did she come to the U.S.? How did she adjust to life in this country? Um, where she was from originally? Was she exposed to violence? Is there any PTSD related to some of the different experiences she had? Um, and actually, before I go into this any further, one of the things that I, that I often hear from people, I'll, um, uh, not often, but sometimes I'll hear folks say, you know, but this person, she's got real pain. You know, she's got, you know, imaging studies that show that she's got something going on, you know. And the reality is, is all of our patients have real pain. Their experience of pain is absolutely real. Um, and the psychological factors, while addressing some of the things that I'm going to um, mention right now, they're not going to fix her pain. They can certainly help change what her overall experience of pain is and help improve her quality of life. Uh, the way I couch it to patients is if, if you think about the pain in their body as being a fire, addressing the different things. that I'm not looking for the, the match that lit the fire. I'm looking for the gasoline on top of the fire. And addressing a lot of the different factors that influence the pain isn't going to necessarily make it go away, but it's a lot easier to manage a single flame than a raging inferno. And so with that, um, I would look at those different cultural factors. I'd look to see if there's any of that trauma history. Um, she's widowed. I'd want to know a little bit more about that. When did her husband pass away? Um, how has she been coping with that? Uh, she has one son. Um, he doesn't come around very frequently. Um, how does she cope with that? Um, is there stress in the relationship with her son? Does she have any other social support? Um, she's active in her church, but does she have any social support through that church uh, that she can count on? I'd want to know a little bit more about her depression. Um, how does it manifest? Um, also, looking at cultural factors, um, a lot of times in certain cultures, there can be a tendency to be very agreeable with medical professionals and just say, yes, 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 but they're not necessarily engaged with the treatments that are recommended to them. Looking to see if that's something that's playing a role here, and specifically looking, for example, at her diabetes. How compliant is she with them? Um, we see that she's got medications that she's taking, but has she been compliant? Have there been problems with that? Because if she hasn't been compliant with diabetes, there's a lot of parallels between diabetes management and pain management. And so that would be very predictive of how engaged she would be with pain management care. Um, and so I'd want to try to address some of those compliance-related issues if they're uh, even present. And I would also want to address suicidality, uh, especially in a person who's not able to um, uh, speak, um, uh, speak in English. I would want to make sure that that's thoroughly assessed to make sure that there's no uh, risk of harm to self or others. Thank you. I wasn't that worried about Stella until you, you know, chipped, chipped in. All right. Um, so our final case study, it's a little bit more involved, um, so we'll try and get through this in a, as expedited a manner as possible. But I think it's um, a, a significant concern, particularly when we're looking at opiate abuse disorder and those that are at risk for addiction. And how do we manage patients with a known addiction history that also have pain? So introducing Frank, Frank's a 22-year-old Afro-American male um, who is a T7 paraplegic from a gunshot wound, prior history um, of gang involvement, prior history of substance abuse. He does have a diagnosis of central pain and spasticity. He was admitted to the acute care hospital for a surgical revision of a skin graft um, from a skin breakdown. Uh, he's on Suboxone maintenance therapy. So um, he is adequately treated in the community. He's on stable Suboxone therapy. Um, he sees a uh, therapist, an addictionologist, a prescriber. Then he's admitted um, to the acute care hospital, and um, he gets a drug screen done, which I'll show you in the next slide. And uh, it finds... Um, it shows that he's um, coming up positive for opiates. And so he admits that he was um, using hydrocodone from friends. Um, and he does also have a prior cannabis uh, history. 
And um, when you see him in the um, acute care setting, he's having um, unmanageable spasticity uh, along with his other pain. His medical history, um, paraplegic for three years, he's bipolar, he's got diffuse body pain, spasticity, substance abuse disorder, which you know, and he uses tobacco. Uh, his medications, he's on Suboxone maintenance therapy, like I mentioned. He's on baclofen, oral baclofen, uh, for his spasticity and fluoxetine. Surgical history, um, he, uh, had, he was stabilized with spine surgery um, after his gunshot wound. And uh, he has a suprapubic catheter placed, and he's also had a history of left rotator cuff uh, repair. Social history, lives with his mom. He um, still hangs out with friends from high school. Uh, He has an on-and-off-again girlfriend, and he's been feeling more isolated since his initial gunshot wound. On his exam, he's normotensive. He's got um, decreased uh, range of motion in that left shoulder, which is chronic. He's got his suprapubic catheter that looks to be functioning appropriately. He's got patchy sensation to his left lower extremity, and uh, he's um, mildly hypertonic. He's got a right buttock skin breakdown. Remember, he's in the acute care setting. Um, but it, it does show healthy granulation tissue. His toxicology um, screen on admission is positive for alcohol, opiates, THC, and he's got a positive urine culture. Wow. How many of you work acute care in a hospital? How many of you do pain in a hospital? Okay. Is Frank, have you ever seen Frank before? Okay. All right. Can I elicit you for next year's panel? They're challenging, right? Incredibly challenging. So, um, Jeremy, what would be your initial thoughts and or concerns during his admission? You know, it's funny you say challenging. I thought you were giving us a uh, freebie here on the last case, you know, as we wrap things up. Hello. All right. So so this obviously is complicated multiple uh, different ways. You have a young patient here. He's going to have a lifelong problem, and he's got coexisting uh, central pain, which is it was challenging to treat, and... Uh, addiction, uh, substance use disorder, and he's uh, non-compliant. I mean, he's under uh, active suboxone treatment, but he's drinking alcohol, he's taking Norco, he's using marijuana. He's, uh, he's not in a good place. Uh, this is certainly a, a patient that is beyond the, the real capabilities of any single specialty, and that's when multidisciplinary care is so essential. Uh, he needs uh, greater coordinated care through addiction medicine, certainly pain specialty uh, care, neurology. Uh, rehab, um, psychology. So this is this is not not an easy case. Um, in terms of his uh, long term planning, um, one of the things when I first saw this case that immediately came to my mind is is really start thinking about intrathecal therapies. What can we what can we do if he has unmanageable spasticity? Can we consider intrathecal baclofen? Could we look for his neuropathic pain with something like uh, ziconotide or a non opiate management strategy for pain control? Uh, certainly looking at his medications, we want to look at the options available for neuropathic pain. Um, certainly it can be hit or miss, but uh, things like gabapentin and pregabalin uh, would, would come to mind. He needs really strict oversight, uh, small quantities of prescriptions, frequent urine drug testing. He needs to have very clear uh, goals and expectations about what can be achieved. He uh, really just can't safely continue uh, going kind of the way that he is going because he's going to end up with a a significant harm from treatment. Uh, For severe pain, as far as opioids, we have uh, uh, been gathering certainly more and more experience using uh, suboxone or buprenorphine certainly as a uh, analgesic and a lot of patients with dual diagnosis of a uh, chronic pain condition in the context of addiction. That's been a, a pretty valuable tool. 
So he's currently on 16 milligrams a day. That may be uh, adequate once he's through this acute uh, care setting to continue, but it's not even safe to continue that if he's going to be mixing in uh, opioids he's obtaining through other means and alcohol and, and really the uh, the types of behaviors that he is uh, presenting. He This is not a stable patient. Yeah, so, I mean, and, and those of you that do acute care, you, you really have to kind of prioritize what, you know, is, you, is your priority. Um, and it's to keep him safe, um, to not give in, because there's going to be a lot of manipulation here, and I'll let Dr. Prasadil, um speak to that, but there's going to be a lot of manipulation of his health care providers. He's in a setting where he's probably feeling this is kind of a free-for-all. He knows he's been caught. You know, is this somebody that's going to start asking for more IV medicines? You know that his opiates orally and maybe even IV are going to be less effective because he's on the suboxone therapy. You don't want to take him off the suboxone therapy. So you may want to just, you know, harm reduction, get him through this acute um, phase, um, have a conversation with his addictionologist, and then set up um, the follow-up appointments, right? It's really the follow-up care that's going to be the most important, and I agree with you not sending him out with anything other than his Suboxone. Don't send him out with more short-acting opiates. Make sure um, that he's still on the dose that he came in on, but maybe you might even want to, with the okay of the addictionologist, um, increase. Use the, the Suboxone or the buprenorphine as an analgesic on top of his maintenance therapy. It's a very challenging case. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to add also on the urine drug test. Um, I'm not sure what uh, this looks like an immunoassay test, but uh, we don't even know if he's taking the buprenorphine. Right. Um, it says opiates uh, are positive, but uh, he says he's taking hydrocodone. So we want yeah. to verify he's actually on treatment. Yeah, maybe he's selling his, his Suboxone. You know, and again, that's an important thing to know because then, you know, if you have any exposure on the inpatient side with folks that are on Suboxone, they're less responsive to the pure mu agonist. So you may want to, you know, you may write for a higher dose than he really needs if he's really not using his Suboxone. So it's harm reduction. It's keeping him safe in a very tight package while he's in the, in the hospital. And um, I like your idea, and we'll let Dr. Haas speak to um, interventions that you um, probably wouldn't do or start thinking about, though, when he's on the inpatient as, as when he transitions to the, um, the outpatient facility. He's infected right now, right? He may be chronically infected because he's got a suprapubic catheter. And would that be something that you would then, knowing that somebody has a, uh, a chronic infection, uh, Dr. Ha, would you, would you or would you not consider him for uh, implantable therapies? Yeah, that's a really important consideration with the suprapubic catheter. You know, um, we have the luxury of referring to our functional neurosurgeons. So in this case, I think it's just in this patient's best interest if you ultimately wanted to really put in the baclofen pump or whatever intrathecal management therapy that it would be done by somebody who could do it quickly and with the least likely amount of risk. But kind of backing up to the perioperative management, so I'm just putting on my anesthesiologist hat. Um, if someone comes in on some sort of opioid maintenance therapy, medication-assistant therapy, the easiest thing to do is, is to change their dosing. So oftentimes for methadone, it's that once daily dosing, or for this person, it's BID suboxone. But just changing that over right away to a TID dosing if you're going to try to keep them on on the agonist therapy throughout the course of treatment. Methadone is a pure mu agonist, so we don't worry. We can just uh, stack additional short-acting opioids on top of it. The Suboxone is going to be a little tricky, and we don't have a lot of data beyond just some case reports in terms of how people do. 
There were some initial reports of really poorly managed pain if people came in on Suboxone, but lately our literature is saying, no, we can get these patients through. Uh, the strategy if it's a relatively um, low-pain surgery, minimally invasive surgery, which this sounds like with a skin graft, this guy is likely to be able to tolerate staying on his suboxone therapy and then any other opi- uh, non-opioid treatment stat- strategy. So this is where the multimodal concept really comes into play if you can run a ketamine infusion, if you can run a lidocaine infusion, if he's not a candidate for any type of regional block uh, depending on you know where the graft is, can we do something to to cover him with any of these other non opioid strategies? Optimize his other medication management, and then it's going to be really important for us when he comes out on the other end that there's somebody to catch him. That somebody who knows uh, that his suboxone dosing frequency has changed and is going to pick it up in in the post state. Yeah, excellent. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. So um. Before I'm going to go ahead and we're going to okay. So now, now he's getting ready to go home. So you've done your stabilization um, as much as you can to get him through this acute course. And now we're looking at what are his rehab needs, what are his psychology needs, what are you know the medical management needs. So prior um, care and treatments, just for background. So following his gunshot wound initially. He was hospitalized for two months, um, and he was then transitioned to a subacute rehab facility for an additional six weeks. So, has that in his background that you could potentially use um, as a therapist in terms of going forward? He had difficulty weaning off of his opiates um, at that initial time, and and that was the reason he was transitioned to the Suboxone a year ago, and now it's prescribed by his primary care provider. Oops, yeah. Would it be time now to get addiction medicine involved? Um, he only saw a mental health provider once at age 17 when he was incarcerated for petty theft. Oops. Um, and he was given a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. All right. So Dr. Prasad, do you have any concerns with this guy? No, I know. We're gonna go, I'm going to go. I know you're not Dr. Prasad. We're going to go backwards. I'm mixing it up. You got my entertainment. Guard. Yeah. Um, I don't really have any concerns about him. Um, Go ahead, put a pump in him, he'll be fine, yeah. <laughs> I think he just needs more drugs. Um, <laughs> no, so there's, there's a number of things with him. Um, I would want to know, uh, one of the first things that kind of pops up is um, uh, the bipolar disorder that was diagnosed. Um, you know, he's not taking any medications for managing this. Is this an accurate diagnosis or not? And if it is an accurate diagnosis, that bipolar disorder needs to be uh, more appropriately managed. So he would need to see a psychiatrist um, uh, to help with that management. Um, but there are a number of other things that come up related to chemical dependency. Um, he's clearly actively still have still has a substance use disorder. Um, he needs to be plugged into some sort of chemical dependency treatment. Uh, but I'd be curious to know where he is right now in terms of his um, awareness of his um, his issues and whether he's really ready to engage in any kind of treatment. Is he in a pre-contemplation, contemplation, action, or maintenance state? Well, definitely not in action or maintenance, but is he at pre-contemplation or contemplation? And if he's kind of in that contemplation where he recognizes, hey, you know what, I've been shot, I've, I've lost some function, but I know I need to do something, but I'm not ready to, then could use something like motivational interviewing to try to help him move into a space where he could do more effective behaviors um, to change what his situation is. Um, you know, with somebody like this um, who's got substance use disorders, medication-assisted therapy is obviously something that would be indicated. But a lot of times people think medication-assisted treatment for addiction involves using drugs like Suboxone. Therefore, I'm using a medication that's assisting the treatment for 
chemical dependency. But the assistance part is actually the behavioral component. It's uh, the cognitive behavioral-based therapies. That's the assistant part, and a lot of times people are missing that. So I'd want to make sure that if he does get chemical dependency treatment, that it includes that behavioral component. Um, you know, and beyond that, beyond just the, the glaringly obvious things with his medications, you know, he's also smoking cigarettes, which is also uh, indicated with the chronic pain condition. So I'd want to have him focus on smoking cessation. Um, I'd want to know how he's coping with the injury and with not just the injury, but the, the loss of function. Um, you know, he's uh, no longer, I mean, he's got a T7, what was T7, right? Yeah, so he's, you know, the loss of function, how is he adjusting to that? Is there any PTSD uh, related to this particular situation? Um, I would want to assess his safety. I'd want to understand the circumstances around his getting shot. Is he in a safe place? Um, he was also in a gang before. So I'd not only assess like suicidal ideation, but especially homicidal ideation as well. Um, is there any risk that he may harm other people? Um, I'd want to assess for things like diversion. Um, and also, you know, if there's consideration for things like an intrathecal pump for baclofen for spasticity over the course of time, compliance is critically important. Um, uh, Intrathecal baclofen withdrawal can be fatal, right? And so we'd want to make sure that this guy um, is actually compliant. And if he's not, then, you know, even though that could be something that would help significantly spasticity, um, because of his behaviors, he may not be a candidate for that. Thank you. So, Kate, do you see, um, so he's had this physical therapy initially after his gunshot wound. How, if you were then presented with this case, you know, what, what else could you add to his therapy or what else do you think should be needed for his therapy? I think a lot of exploration, first of all. It's pretty clear that he's not managing his position at home very well. I mean, you don't just get skin breakdown because you sit for an hour too long. It, it, it takes a lot more than that. Uh, and I wonder whether he needs an updated seating assessment. I wonder if the mobility device he has allows him independence. I wonder if his neighborhood allows him to feel safe and go out in his wheelchair. I work with a number of people in inner city, uh, downtown San Francisco. They refuse to take a walking device if they're unstable with their balance. They refuse it because it makes them look vulnerable on the street. So I think about that for him. Does he feel like he can move well in the device that he was, he was given years ago? And maybe it's time for an update. Uh, I, I would ask him more about what are his outlets? What, how does he spend his time? I would ask about his sexual function because with this kind of injury, there are clear impairments and also a lot of possibilities. So how else does he feel like himself when he can't be the self that he was? Uh, and I would get his girlfriend in and talk about that if they're comfortable. Um, and in general, there are many resources to get a person like this transitioned into an active lifestyle in a wheelchair. Has he learned about those? Is he interested in those? What other outlets can he have to find his identity in this new life? Uh, and three years out, if he's getting skin breakdown and not adherent to med regimens, something's not right. At, you know, his home life is not gratifying, I would think. And so I'd want to know more about that. And um, there are lots of resources that he may not know about uh, for many different regions of the country. And he, shoulder issues. I'd also need to know about his ADL independence. Does he need help with the basics? How are his transfers? Um, does he have things at home in the bathroom that he can use to do things independently? Or is his identity and, and self-efficacy eroding day by day because he needs help with daily self-care? Uh, and for a 22-year-old man who used to be in a gang, that can be pretty demeaning, I imagine. So, you know, these are some pretty serious psychosocial considerations, which all goes into spinal cord rehabilitation. And he likely had some of that. But in the initial stages, when you're just getting used to 
being in a chair, a lot of the great education in an inpatient rehab ward just gets sloshed right over your head. You, you just can't absorb it. So it might be time yeah. to think about readmission to a rehab center. Excellent. Thank you. All right. So in summary, we talked about chronic pain and acute and chronic pain. We talked about the interventional therapies that, that maybe, you know, you've explored or that you haven't thought of. We've talked about um, management of acute post-surgical pain in a setting of chronic opiate use disorder and frank addiction. We've talked a little bit about opiate management and multimodal uh, treatments. And we also um, really, hopefully for you, presented a, a, a reasonable biopsychosocial model of uh, treatment. So I want to thank my panelists, and I want to thank the audience for all their time. And we probably have about five, ten minutes for questions, but I'm sure that if you have to run, the group will stay here and answer any questions. So thank you. All right. Any questions from the audience? All right. In the back there. Stand, stand up, darling. Yeah. The, the question is, what's the minimum amount of treatment, maybe number of sessions you're asking for a physical therapy for someone who travels 60% of the time? And my answer to you, this is how I practice. I'm always thinking about the minimum that someone can do in order to help themselves. <laughs> like, what can we do day to day? And that's, uh, and I, and I would say, uh, in the private sector, that is the model that physical therapists are going to anyway because reimbursement is difficult. So they're all kind of looking for how can we optimize this session and then when can I see you again and what can you do between now and then. So there is no minimum number. I would, I would think it really depends on how this person is doing things day to day and how much he is willing to incorporate in different lifestyle changes. Um, if I were writing a care plan, I... Uh, I would at least want three visits just to make sure there's some reinforcement and gauging of what his level of commitment is. Yeah. All right. Any more questions? Yes. Oh, Frank's. I'm sorry. I was going back to Robert. Legal status. Ah, right, great. Is he on probation or parole? Personality disorders possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great Thank points. These are all really important considerations. Yeah. All right. So, any questions or issues or concerns about his medication list? So around the clock baclofen, maybe even at higher doses, right? Okay.
So what would you think about? So, because baclofen is in, in spinal cord injury, it's, it's kind of the one we go to. What other um, antispasmodics have you tried that you've found effective? Which really, which really um, requires, so the statement was, you know, actually because of his pain, maybe taking him off the Suboxone, giving him a pure mu agonist <clears throat> for short term, but you really need to make sure that you have good follow-up, right? And that you've talked to every, every provider that he could potentially go to and to God before you do that on this guy, right? right. Yeah, but it might be reasonable. If you need to decrease the central wind-up, you know, that might be something that would be reasonable. Yeah. So any idea, any comment from the audience about the concerns about putting the guy on a tricyclic and or gabapentin that you can think about? So for me, the, it, it wasn't in this scenario, but with his history and further um, assessment from your mental health providers, you might find that there was some suicidality in the past, you know, and that might really preclude you from wanting to go the TCA route. Um, but I think it's the reason, you know, how do we better optimize his neuropathic pain regimen? Um, and gabapentin, unfortunately, gabapentin and pregabalin um, are getting a lot of bed press right now for being abusable drugs. You know, so there is. It's not an easy case. It's not an easy case. Thank you, Tracy.